Good morning, everyone. How are you guys all doing? Fantastic. Colin actually told me that when you actually have the meet and greet, you guys actually meet and greet each other. And so a lot of other churches that I've uh, been a part of, you know, you sort of like do like the five foot in either direction and it's the awkward handshake. But you guys are really, really welcoming. And so thanks so much for having me, guys. And it really has been a privilege for me to hang out uh, for the last couple of days. And Colin and Liz, I remember I've been at Kensington now for two years. And when I first got there, when I was in the interview process, I met them at an event. And so they were actually already living here and getting the process started. And as they've come back and forth from Detroit, I've got to know them a lot better, and they've told me so many incredible things about this community and what's happening here, and not only within this community, but also how God is using this community to really impact the area. And so it's amazing for us to be here and to put a lot of names or faces to names and to meet a lot of you, and so it really is a privilege for us and not only myself, but my family as well. But just so you guys understand a little bit more about who I am, um, I'm actually originally, I'm not from Detroit, I'm originally from Vancouver, and not the fake Vancouver in Washington state, but the real one in Canada. And my wife, Robin, and I, we've been married for 13 years, and she's originally from northwest Minnesota. And then I think you're, this is a picture of our family. And so my kids are back there, and we have three little ones, Eliana, who's eight, Isaiah, who's six, and our little wrecking ball, Mia, who's in the nursery right now, or with the kids, and she's a year and a half. And we, my wife, Robin, and I, we met while we were working with a humanitarian organization called Mercy Ships. And that's actually where we met Chris and Bethany Slack. I see you guys back there. And they're back there. They're part of the community. Um, we met them there. And after we left that organization, we actually moved to this area. And we were here for three years. I went to uh, school up in uh, the North Shore uh, for that time. And we were actually married. Robin and I were married in Beverly. And so for the past couple of days, it's been amazing just being back and just going down memory lane and just visiting all these places that we used to hang out at before we ever had children. And so it's been amazing to be back here. Not that their children are a gift. And I keep on reminding myself of that every day. Um, But it really has been great. And so thank you so much for having us and for having me and allowing me to be here. But even though we just met, something that I know about every single person here is that we've all accomplished great things in our lives and that we paid off that debt, we lost the weight, we married the guy or the girl of our dreams, we started this company, we graduated from this school. We've all done amazing things. But at the same time, something else that I know about all of us is that in some area of our lives, we're not where we want to be. We're not where we thought we'd be. Maybe we thought that at this point in our lives that our marriage would be in a better place. Maybe we thought that we'd be further along in our career and we'd have this title, we'd be making this amount of money, we'd have this office. Maybe we thought we'd be financially more stable, physically healthier, or at a certain place in terms of our relationship with Jesus. But whatever it is, we find that in some area, there's a gap in our lives between where we are and where we want to be. And when I was growing up, one of my favorite movies was The Karate Kid. And no, it's not because all Asian people like martial arts movies. But I love the movie, and I think I watched it like at least a dozen times. And towards the beginning of the movie, if you've ever seen the movie, you remember that Mr. Miyagi, there's this, there's this point that Mr. Miyagi agrees to take on Danielson as one of his students. But his training doesn't exactly start off in the way that he anticipated, because for the first four days, he finds himself sanding Mr. Miyagi's deck, painting his house and his fence, and washing and waxing all of his cars. You, even if you haven't seen the movie, you, you remember wax on, wax off, right? And so there's a point, there's this really incredible scene in the movie 
where after those four days, Daniel has had it because he thought he would be learning karate, and in his eyes, he wasn't. He thought he'd be further along on the journey by that point, learning how to kick, block, punch, and defend himself. There was a gap between his experience and his expectations. And there's this scene where he just lets Mr. Miyagi have it, and he says, you know what? I'm done. I'm done, and I'm tired of being your slave. And he begins to walk away, and he says, I quit. And Mr. Miyagi goes after him, and he, and he stops him, and he brings him back. And he opens his eyes to the fact that everything that he had gone through, that everything that he had experienced was a part of his training, was in fact a part of his development. He just didn't see it. That gap that he experienced was actually a part of the plan. And today, what we're going to be looking at is that we're going to be looking at probably one of the most amazing stories in the scriptures, and it's of a man named David, and we find it in the Old Testament. And what we see in David's story is that, just like Danielson, he experienced this gap in his life, in that he wasn't where he thought he would be, in that there was this gap between his experience and his expectations. And this gap lasted not for just a few days, like Daniel, but it actually lasted for years. And I can imagine for David, in the waiting, he began to ask questions like, God, what are you doing? Like, what's taking so long? Have you forgotten about me? And when we look at the story, we see that God hadn't forgotten about him. But it was in this gap that God was taking him through a very important process where he was trying to pull out of him what he, what he had placed in him so that he could ultimately put him in the position that he had promised. And this is so important for every single one of us here because we're all in a process right now. And as I mentioned, we're not where we want to be, not where we thought we'd be in some area of our life. And I can imagine that's left us feeling discouraged, disillusioned, frustrated, maybe even angry. Because none of us like the gap. We all want to get to our destination. We all want to get to that place where we feel like, you know what, if I could just be there, it would be so much better. And so if we're honest, we hate these seasons of waiting because we want to take hold of that promise. But what if I told you that the gap is one of the most beautiful places to be? Because it's in the gap that God does some of his most beautiful and powerful work. It's in these seasons of our lives that he teaches us invaluable lessons. He develops our skills and abilities. He forges our faith and he instills in us the character that we will need to ultimately step into what he has for us. Because something else that I know about all of us here is that God has created us with a very specific purpose. And he's chosen us and he's marked us for impact, for greatness, and to do more than we could ever understand or imagine. But there's a process to becoming this. Just like a person doesn't become president or CEO overnight, we don't become the people who God has created us to be overnight as well. And what we're going to see in the story of David is that if we continue to trust the process, eventually we will experience the promise. And when we look at the scriptures, And when we look at the history of Israel, the very first king of the nation of Israel was a guy by the name of Saul. And if you know Saul's story, something that you know is that I feel like, at least going backtracking a little bit, at least in church world, I feel like Saul gets a bad rap because of what happened later on in his life. But this guy started off as a good guy because Saul was anointed by God to be king. And what it means to be anointed is that it means to be set apart or to be chosen for the purposes of God. But what happened with Saul is that later on in his life, he decided that, you know what? I want to do my own thing. I want to go my own way. So he chose to disobey God and God rejected him as king. And after that happened, 
one day, God came to one of his prophets, a guy by the name of Samuel, and said, you know what? I'm going to leave Saul in his current position as king. But what I want you, but I've moved my anointing from him, and I want you to go to this, a certain place that I'm going to send you, and I want you to anoint the next king of Israel, the next person that I've chosen. And so Samuel did exactly that. And that he went to this town called Bethlehem, same town that where Jesus was born, to anoint the next king, the person that God would show him. And this is what happened. It says this. When they arrived, actually, let me just read it off here. When they arrived, because I guess Samuel traveled with an entourage, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. And who Eliab was, was that he was actually the oldest of Jesse's sons, because that's the place that he went. He went to the house of a man named Jesse. And Jesse had a bunch of sons, and Eliab was his oldest. And so when this guy walks in, when Samuel walks in, he sees Eliab, and this guy was a good-looking guy. And because he was the oldest, he was probably the tallest, he was the most built. And so he looks at him, and this guy probably looks like a model, and he says, you know what? That's the next king. Because if you see a good-looking guy, he's probably like Saul, and he's thinking, it must be him. But then this is what God said to Samuel. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And when we read that, that is great news for me and for you. Because it says that God doesn't judge us by our external appearance, by the size of our bank account, by the number of Instagram followers that we have. He doesn't judge us by the things that the world judges us by. God doesn't look from the outside in, but rather he looks from the inside out. And how I see this whole scene playing out is I see Samuel and Jesse sort of sitting on the ground or just sitting wherever they're sitting. And each of Jesse's sons are passing by. And as they each pass by in front of these two men, Samuel's like, Mm-mm, nope, not him. Nope, not him. Nope, not him. And then the last of Jesse's sons pass by and Samuel turns to Jesse and asks him, do you have any more? Because it was none of these guys. And this was Jesse's response. There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. But you know where he was at? He was out tending the sheep. And the sad part about this to me is that Jesse doesn't even refer to his son by his name, but he actually refers to him by what he was doing, by his function. And his father didn't even think enough of him to call him in because when he thought of his youngest son, David, he thought to himself, you know what? Surely it couldn't be him. But this was Samuel's response. Samuel said, send for him and we will not sit down until he arrives. And so I can imagine David's brothers are all there. And Samuel says, you know what? Until David comes back, we're not going to eat. And they're probably all thinking, really? We got to wait for this guy? And so he sent for him and had him brought in. And he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And when you read that, he had a fine appearance and handsome features. I don't know if that reminds you of anyone, but I guess that joke didn't work. No, no, let's move on. (laughs) Okay, and so then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one, right? And if I was David, so David gets chosen. He's anointed as king in this moment. And you know what? If I was David, you know what I would have thought? You know what I probably would have even said? You know what? The king has arrived. I'm the king. And I probably would have thought, where's my crown? Where's my chariot? Where are my servants? Samuel, when's the moving truck coming? I need to move into the palace ASAP. 
But that's not what happened. Because after David gets anointed as king, you know, you know what happened? Samuel went on his merry way. He actually went to a different town to go and conduct other business. And David, he actually went back to the fields to watch the sheep. Because even though he was anointed as king in that moment, he wouldn't be appointed as king until much later. It would actually be 10 to 15 years later until he would actually step into this promise as king. And those 10 to 15 years, even the king, he didn't even become king of the entire nation of Israel. It was over one tribe called Judah. And then he would have to wait another seven years for this promise to be fully fulfilled. So you do the math. That's 22 to 27 years of waiting until he's finally able to step into this promise and take hold of what God had given him. And so the question that we have to ask is, why would God anoint him in this moment if he wasn't ready to appoint him as king? And the reason is, is because God wanted to take it. So there's this massive gap of 22 to 27 years. And in this gap, what God was doing in David's life is that he was taking him through a process. Because when God looked at David, he said, you know what? There are certain things that need to happen in your life before you can finally step into what I have for you. And the anointing was a reminder of the promise that the process would bring. Because what's so important to understand, and this is the first truth that we want to embrace is this. There is a process to the promise. Is there is a process before the promise can be realized. And this is true for every single one of us as well. Because for all of us, there are things, when God looks at us, he says, you know what, I have great things in store for you. But there are certain things that need to happen in your life before you can take hold of what I have for you, the promise that I have for you. And there's this incredible tree called the Chinese, let me actually get the wording right, the Chinese bamboo tree. And this is a great, great tree. And this is actually what the seed looks like. It looks like a big nut. And just like every other seed, what you have to do with it is that you dig a hole in the ground, you put the seed in, and you cover it up. And if you don't want this tree to die, every single day, you have to show up and you have to water it and you have to fertilize it. But in year one, guess what happens? Nothing, exactly, right? Nothing happens. There's no visible signs of growth. But yet every single day, if you don't want this thing to die, you have to show up and you got to water it and you have to fertilize it. Guess what happens in year two? You all are smart. Nothing happens. No visible signs of growth. Year three, what happens? Nothing. Year four, nothing happens. Right? It's, so, it's like the worst return on investment ever. And so if you didn't know anything about this tree, at that point, you probably were, or even much later, you probably would think, you know what? This thing's dead. Right? Nothing's happening. Right? Nothing is growing here. And you probably walk away and give up. But if you did that, it would be a huge mistake. Because in year five is where the payoff happens. And in year five, this is what happens. In six weeks, six weeks, in a month and a half, this thing grows 90 feet. We're talking that's a little less than eight and a half stories. It's like the ultimate growth spurt happens. And in the first four years, it's not that this tree wasn't growing. It was just simply growing underground. It was developing a foundation. It was developing an elaborate root system to support its growth in year five and beyond. It was going through a process that would prepare itself to ultimately step into the promise that it was supposed to step into. 
That's basically what happens to this tree. That's what happens with this tree. And we live in a culture, we want things right away. We want to experience year five, not in year one, but we want to experience them in day one. We're an incredibly impatient culture. And we think anointing oftentimes, because we've been chosen by God, we should immediately be appointed. Because we've been chosen by God, you know what? We shouldn't have to go back to the field and watch those sheep, but we should be able to move into the palace. Because we've been anointed by God, we think, hey, you know what? I should be able to now stand up on that platform. I should have that title. I should be able to move into that office. I should have that influence. I should be able to lead those people. But when God looks at us, he says, you know what? I have chosen you. I have anointed you. But you know what I want you to do right now? I want you to go back and I want you to watch those sheep. I want you to go back to your job. I want you to go back to your family your friends, I want you to go back to your school. I want you to go back to your spheres of influence because I am not done with you yet. Because in, I want to take you through a process where I am going to develop a foundation in you, a root system in you, so that when you finally step into what I have for you, it won't be a disaster. Because if that foundation is not there, ultimately what will happen is that everything that grows above it will crumble. And this is what we see. A great example of this, I was thinking about this, is with people who win the lottery. Because for many people, they, they're forced in the they're forced to declare bankruptcy because they're, they don't have the foundation to support their newfound success. They've stepped into the promise, so to speak, but they haven't gone through the process. And so they don't have... Everything okay? Okay, great. And so... And so I feel like lottery winners are such a beautiful example of what we're talking about here, is that you have to have that root system. You have to have that foundation. And when God is taking us through that process, that is what he is doing. Because it's in the process that he forges our faith, that he develops our skills and abilities, and he instills in us a character so that when we finally take hold of his promise for us, we're able to handle the adversity, the criticism, the success, the resources, the spotlight that ultimately will come with it. There is a process to the promise. And some of us that I recognize are actually not even some of us. All of us are in that process in some area of our life. And my guess is is that that process is not very pleasant. It's not very fun because the process rarely is. Because when God is taking us through a process, what he wants to do is he wants to grow and develop new things in our lives. And in order for new things to grow, other things need to be removed. Other things need to be uprooted. And so when we go through that process, that process oftentimes is uncomfortable and many times even painful. And so the big temptation for us when we go through a process is to try to cut the process short. To say, you know what, God, I'm done. Right? It's too hard, it's too painful, it's too uncomfortable. I just want to live my life. And I just want to do what I've always done. And so the temptation is for us to shortcut the process. But what's so important for us to understand is that if we choose to shortcut the process, we will short-circuit the product. And what God wants to do in our life will not be able to happen at that point if we simply say, if we simply choose to walk away. And going back to the story of David, this is what we see in his life. Because after David went back to watching the sheep, he was actually called to come and serve Saul, who was the current king at the time. 
And so can you imagine how awkward that must have been for him? And after he goes, and the, one of the first things that he did was that he played the harp for Saul, which really soothed him and calmed him down. But then later on, David went on to achieve some extraordinary things. And one of the things that he did, and probably if, even if this is the very first time that you're in church, you probably have heard this story of David and Goliath, where David killed this giant named Goliath. And after he did this, his fame and his popularity spread. And he became so popular that he actually had groupies who followed him around, and they would sing songs about him. And they would sing songs. One of the songs, this is in the Bible, that they would sing about David was that how David, how Saul had killed thousands, but David had killed ten thousands. And so Saul heard about this, and he's the king at the time. He's the man. And he's thinking, you know what? I want to have groupies too. I want to have people who follow me around and sing songs about how amazing I am, but he didn't. And so he became jealous. And so for the next 10 plus years, he devoted his life to hunting David down like a dog and trying to kill him. And there's this one story that's in the Old Testament book called 1 Samuel. And it's where David and his men, they were running away from Saul. And they were actually hiding in a cave because they didn't want to be found. And so they're hiding in the back of the cave because they heard footsteps of a person coming towards them. And they're holding their breath, trying to be as silent as possible. And when they saw who it was who was coming towards them, their eyes got huge because they realized that it was none other than the king himself. It was none other than Saul himself. And he was completely alone and he was completely vulnerable. And he was about to make himself even more vulnerable because the reason why he entered into that cave was that he had to go number two. So this guy was literally going to be caught with his pants down. And so David's men see this and they're saying to him, Kill him. Kill this guy. God's given you to him. It doesn't get any easier than this. He has no bodyguards around him. And if you don't want to do it, let us do it. Because we have to understand, for years, these guys had been on the run. For years, they had struggled to find food. They probably slept on the ground for who knows how long. And they're thinking, if you kill him, you can be king, David. We can all move into the palace. We can finally have a hot meal, take a shower. I can sleep on a bed. But what David did was that he got close enough to Saul to actually cut off a portion of his robe. And then this is what he said to his men. These are David's words. They're amazing words. Something that I never, ever probably could have done. He said to his men, may the Lord keep me far away from doing such a thing to my Lord, who is the Lord's chosen one, by extending my hand against him. After all, he is the Lord's chosen one. David restrained his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And one of the things that I believe that David understood was that he knew it wasn't his time. And he wasn't going to shortcut the process because he knew that if he did, he would short-circuit the product. And that what God wanted to do in his life at that time wouldn't happen. And there was a temptation there, huge temptation for him would have changed everything, but he understood it is not my time. And I still need to say yes to God and still need to continue through the process. And we all face that temptation as well. Because when we're going through that process in some area of our life, whether it be our marriage, our career, finances, whatever it may be, the big temptation for us is to say, you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of going through this, God. I just want to be done. And if we shortcut the process, ultimately we'll find temporary relief. But where it'll end, it'll lead to greater disappointment and frustration in the end. 
by allowing, by preventing us really from stepping into what God ultimately has for us. And just by a quick show of hands, how many of us remember 35 millimeter film? Anyone? How many of us remember 35 millimeter film? Okay, so most of us, not you guys, right? And so you guys are like looking at this thinking, what in the world is this thing? And so it was funny because sort of like you guys, I was telling my kids, right, a couple of months ago that at one point in human history, we couldn't just pick up a phone and just take pictures of the ceiling and the back of people's heads and just take as many pictures as we wanted, right? Exactly. That was their response as well. And that at one point that we had to take this thing called film, load it into a camera, and then maybe we could take 12, 24, or 36 pictures. And then after we were done, hoping that we didn't take an entire roll of our foot, we'd then take the the film out, take it to a place like Walgreens, and then maybe about four to five business days later, we would come back and voila, magically, these pictures would appear. And I remember, I think one of my kids were like, wow, when you, was that when the dinosaurs were alive? I think they said something like that. But you guys remember that. But I remember, this was probably almost 20 years ago, I had come back from a trip, and I really wanted to see my pictures right away. And so I went up It was one of these places like Walgreens, and so I went up to the sales associate, and I asked him, is there any way for you to speed this up? And I'll never forget what he said to me, because he said, you can't rush the process. Because if you've ever developed film before, you understand that what these stores like Walgreens would do is that they would take the film and that they would ship it off to a place that has a dark room. And in this dark room, in the dark room, what they would do was that they would expose the film to very specific chemicals for very specific periods of time so the image would come out and be forged on the negative. But if someone, if someone inadvertently opened the room of that dark, or opened the door of that dark room and allowed the light to flood in, if someone tried to shortcut the process, what would happen is that the light would expose the negative and the negative would be destroyed. And all those pictures of our foot, we never, ever be able to see. And this is what God so often does in our life. And he takes us into the dark room in order to develop our skills and abilities, in order to develop our faith, in order to develop our character. But if we shortcut the process by exposing the image, his image, that he's actually trying to forge in us, we'll short-circuit the process. And what we have to do is we have to allow God to lead us on, to say yes to him and trust that he actually knows what he's doing and also to trust that he knows where he's leading us. Because if we shortcut the process, we will short-circuit the product. And a couple weeks ago, I was thinking about this message and I was wondering how to end this message and ultimately how to tie it together and what to communicate and what is the idea that I want all of us to take away. And as I was thinking and as I was praying, this word came to mind, and it's the word faithful. And what it means to be faithful is it means to be constant. It means to be loyal. It means to stick with it. It means to say yes to God, not just when things are easy and when things are really going well, but also in the difficulty and the pain and the storms and the heartbreak and the sorrow as well. And when I was thinking about this word, the word faithful, it's not really an exciting word. It's not really an inspiring word. If you want to relate it to a car, the word risk and adventure, that would be like a Ferrari. And the word faithful is sort of like a Toyota Camry. No offense to anyone who drives a Toyota Camry, right? But it's just, it's always there, right? It's sort of just like, it's, 
It's reliable. It's just faithful. And that's what faith, well, that's faithful. That's exactly what faithful is. But as I was thinking about it, and as I was having conversations with people, I came to understand how important this word is in what we're talking about. Because what faithfulness looks like and what faithfulness is in the, when we're going through a process is that it simply is just putting one foot in front of the other and then in the everyday mundane and boring moments saying, yes, God, yes, God, yes, God. That's what it looks like. Even when it gets difficult, even when we're like, God, I am so done with the process in this season that I'm in. It's just simply saying yes to him every single day. Because something that I've come to understand as I've continued to journey with God is that those mountaintop moments that we experience with God that are so emotional, so inspiring, they're amazing, but they're few and far between. And so often what will determine the trajectory of our lives, what will determine who we become and the legacy that we leave are the decisions that we make every single day in the boring, in the mundane, in the everyday moments where we choose to be faithful and we just simply put one foot in front of the other and we say, yes, God, yes, God, yes, God. I trust that you know what you're doing and I trust that you know where you're leading me and I am going to choose to follow you. Even when the feelings aren't there, even when things do not make sense, I'm, I'm gonna continue to choose to be faithful to you. And I was thinking about this because I'm going through a process. We all are going through a process in some area of our life and I'm going through a process in my life as well. And for the past couple of years, I've been on this journey where God has been trying to uproot certain things in my life so that other things can grow. And that process has been an incredibly difficult one, a lot more difficult than I ever anticipated. And part of this process actually happened a few weeks ago when a friend of mine, we were actually having dinner, a good friend of mine, and in the middle of our conversation, he looked at me and he said, I think you have an anger problem. And my response to him was, no, I don't. What do you know? Forget you. That's not what I said to him, but that's what I wanted to say to him. And so I actually talked to a handful of people around me, and I asked them, including my wife, and I asked them, really, is this true? And they said to me, no, you actually do. And then I came to understand, you know what? Like, what he actually said to me was so true. And this is one of the things that God wants to uproot and one of the things that God wants to remove from my life. It's part of the process. And this process, as I mentioned, has been hard. And I'm not really a crier, but over these last couple of years, as I've taken this journey, I've cried more than I could ever imagine. And it's been hard. And there are so many times where I said, you know what, God, I am finished. I don't want to deal with this anymore. I just want my life to be back to normal. I don't want to have to deal with this stuff or have to go through this stuff or have to figure this stuff out. I want to be done. But something else that I recognize is that when we go through this process with God and when we say yes to him, he also surrounds us with incredible people. And that's what he's done in my life and that I have a handful of people who are walking with me on this journey and who remind me, hey, you know what, don't quit. Who remind me, God is doing something incredible in your life. And when I look at my life and where I am right now, one of the things I'm so grateful for is that I'm able to see and also other people are able to see what God has done in my life. And I feel like I'm a better pastor, I'm a better leader, and what I'm really grateful for is I feel like I'm a more loving father and husband as a result of this process that I'm through, going through. And I have no idea where the destination is. I have no idea how long the journey is. 
but the people around me and God reminds me almost every single day, hey, continue to say yes. Because as I lead you through the process, something extraordinary and beautiful will ultimately happen, not only in your life, but also through your life as well. And something that I was reminded of just a couple of weeks ago is that when we are going through the process, it's so, so easy for us, if you're anything like me, to just look at the gap that's in front of us to look at the gap between where we are and where we want to be because we all want to get to the destination. We all see the goal and we say, you know what, that's where I want to be, right? That's the promised land and I want to take hold of that. And we see this space and we want to say, hey, how can I get there faster? How can I move further? And oftentimes when we look at this space, sometimes it can even be discouraging because we see where we are and where we want to be and it's hard to get there. And it can be frustrating and all of that. But in the process, what I think is so often important for us to also keep in mind is to not just simply look at where we are and where we want to be, but also where we are and where we used to be. And to also focus on the second gap. Because when we look at this second gap, we are reminded of God's goodness. We're reminded of God's power. We're reminded of his faithfulness in our life. That just as he's brought us all of this way, that he will continue to walk with us and give us everything that we need to move forward as well. And so this process isn't easy. But at the same time, when you look at your life and you look at the process that God has you in, what would it look like for you to just simply say in the everyday, in the mundane, as God leads you on and as God moves you and nudges you to say, yes, God, yes, God, and yes, God, and to put one foot in front of the other and choose to be faithful, understanding that he will lead you and he will do extraordinary things in your life and in mine that we could never, ever do by ourselves. What would it look like for us to be faithful? Let's bow our heads and let's pray. So God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you, Lord, that you take us through a process in our life, not because you want to make our lives miserable, but really the opposite of it, because you want us to be the people who you created us to be, Lord. And you want to create beauty in our lives in a way that only you can do. But I know, and every single one of us know, that that process is not easy, it is not pleasant, and at times it could even be painful, Lord. But in those seasons, I pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength to choose you, that you would also surround us with people, Lord, who remind us, God, of the work that you are doing in our life and who encourage us to say yes to you. Thank you for your constant presence in our life, whether we recognize it or not, Lord. You are with us every moment of every single day, giving us everything that we need to do what you've called us to do. Thank you, Lord, that you are doing powerful work in our lives, and you also desire to use us to do something extraordinary in the world around us. So we thank you, Lord, and we pray these things in your son's name.